Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in, for downloading and listening to uh, the Fired Up podcast for this week. This is Steve, and I host the show every week right here on the WJMS Media platform. And I do appreciate uh, everybody dropping in to uh, hear what's going on in the political system here in the U.S. and in other places around the world, as uh, we are part of a global society, everybody. And we need to pay attention not just to what goes on here in the U.S., but we need to also focus attention where needed on what's going on in the world uh, as a whole. So let's get it kicked off, as we usually do each uh, and every episode. Let's check in with where we are with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Currently in the U.S., we are at 79.5 million cases reported. Uh, 968,000 people, unfortunately, have died from COVID uh, disease, and 554.7 million people have received vaccinations. Uh, That equals out to 58% uh, fully vaccinated and 67% having received at least one dose. So for those of you out there who are taking the steps to keep yourselves, your families, and your communities safe from covid Uh, We appreciate it. Keep up the good work and encourage others to follow in your footsteps. Uh, We've got an interesting show this this week, uh, this podcast, and uh, we're going to touch on a bunch of subjects, uh, you know, in kind of a lightning round, as it were. So uh, where do we start? Well, let's let's start here at home. Uh, Let's uh, start with some legislation that came out of Florida uh, over the past uh, week or 10 days. Uh, a, a bill was uh, enacted through the Florida legislature uh, dealing with uh, discussions of uh, LGBTQ um, uh, rights and, and situations in the public and in the schools. Uh, it has grown the nickname, the quote, don't say gay, close quote, uh, bill. Uh, That bill passed the House in Florida and the Florida State Senate, and it has gone to Governor uh, DeSantis's desk for his signature. Uh, Essentially, it's just another uh, step in the the propaganda and battle, the political battle going on over various so-called controversial subjects, uh, you know, discussion of uh, sex identification and and that, uh, along with discussions on critical race theory, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, are all uh, items that the conservative and right-wing uh, people out there are pushing on to all of us even if, as in the case of uh, critical race theory, uh, their case that they are making doesn't really apply the way they are saying that it does. And, and I will clarify that in, in a second. But the, um, the Don't Say Gay bill has caused a lot of controversy down in Florida and beyond the borders of Florida as uh, more and more uh, school districts and you know political jurisdictions around the country are taking on these conservative uh, talking points and, and action points 
and really putting out there uh, legislation that goes you know somewhat against what we suppose that America is about. Uh, it is interesting, and I find it interesting, that people are you know battling over whether or not uh, to have discussions about sexuality and you know uh, LGBT uh, issues in the classrooms, particularly in our elementary schools. And you know the the arguments are that you know these topics should not be part of the curriculum you know for uh, elementary school students. And to a certain extent, I can uh, I can get behind the reasoning for you know some of the fundamentals of what they're talking about. Uh, when you're when you're teaching young children, uh, you know first grade through sixth grade. Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, homosexuality and, you know, same-sex marriages and relationships and all that may be a little bit more mature than, you know, students of that age are prepared to hear. I'm not saying that it, it should not be discussed or it should be put out there in a negative light, which is what we're seeing in some cases uh, revolving around this law, but uh, I think you know an honest uh, discussion, age appropriate, uh, has a place in elementary education. As for example, same-sex marriage is decided law; it's the law of the land. Uh, it is out there; it is visible, and it is not something that you can hide even from from younger children, as they see it. And in many cases, uh, they actually are experiencing it. There are a large number of children out there in the country who have uh, parents uh, who are a same-sex couple and, you know, are perfectly well-adjusted and happy. So, you know, once again, I, I think that um, some of the people on the conservative side of the ledger are, you know, barking about a situation that really either doesn't exist or is much less serious than the the hue and cry that they are bringing forth about it uh, in an effort to uh, to rally their base and drive uh, political funding and you know these sorts of things um, you know as I mentioned the other discussion going on, it continues to be around uh, race in this country and particularly cr you know, critical race theory, which is, uh, by definition, a college-level course or curriculum that deals with the impact uh, of slavery and enslavement of people in the history of the United States and it is uh, designed and intended to be a more mature level discussion that is, you know, uh, college level uh, generally, and you know, maybe some introductory discussion at the high school level. But what we're hearing is people are addressing this as if this is something that is being taught in first and second grade, and that's that's simply not the case. You know, once again. You know, an argument is being made 
against a condition that doesn't have a, a widespread occurrence. Uh, and by widespread, I mean, you know, it is very, very uh, sparse in terms of, of school districts and uh, schools and, and classrooms that are discussing these topics. Uh, and, you know, even though you know, there may be some, they are being addressed by local school board policies, by local school, uh, you know, teacher policies and lesson plan guidance and so forth. So, you know, it is in, in many ways uh, making much ado about nothing, but using that and energy and influence as a means to drive uh, political agendas, uh, fundraising and, you know, uh, getting, uh, raising votes and so forth. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, it, it is simply something is used as another tool to divide us. And I, I think... You know, if you are having discussions about you know, critical race theory, uh, you know, if if you're you know engaged in a discussion with someone who is uh, speaking against critical race theory being taught in elementary schools, uh, remind them that you know the overwhelming and and by overwhelming I mean you know ninety percent uh, plus of school districts. And, and schools, elementary schools in this country don't discuss critical race theory with elementary age students. Uh, it is not a subject that is brought up in any uh, deep sense until, you know, the, at the earliest possibly senior, senior year high school uh, and more typically in college level courses. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, an outshoot of what was uh, taught with regard to applications of the law, uh, but it has it has grown into a broader discussion. So, whether whether you're talking about um, you know uh, same sex LGBTQ issues and so forth, the idea that is being put out there and the battle cry that is being generated as a result is that these subjects are being taught to the youngest of our children, which is, you know, by and large, and according to uh, all of the sources that I have seen, is not true. It is not an elementary level course. Now, <clears throat> you know, there, there obviously, we live in a multiracial society, and uh, our, our schools are at least intended to be uh, diverse in their populations. So there may be some discussions about, uh, you know, different uh, races, different ethnicities, and, you know, the benefits of, of all of that. We just came out of, you know, Black History Month, where we spend the month of February discussing the contributions of African Americans to the history of the United States. Uh, you know, now in, in March, we are in Women's History Month where we take the same approach and address the, the benefits and the values and the contributions of women uh, in the, the history and business and politics of the United States. And we go through and, and have these uh, ethnic and, and sociological celebrations throughout the year. 
You know, we we do the same thing with uh, Asian American Pacific Islander, with um, with Hispanic and Latin X, with all of the different groups that make up uh, this experiment called America, and you know, to use these as a battle cry for political purposes. Uh, number one is is patently unfair to uh, the groups who are on the receiving end uh, of this this attacks and vitriol and so forth. But also, it just is a a poor uh, example to the world of you know what America is about. Uh, we say the words about America being you know that that beacon on the hill, that shining light that golden city, uh, and yet day to day and every day, we see more and more instances of uh, actions and words and you know, leadership and legislation coming out of our political processes that uh, speak against that. So you know, it, I think we as the, the constituents of this country need to uh, be more firm and more vocal in defending the differences that make up America because it is something that benefits all of us. Um, you know, and I, I just, you know, wanted to lead off with this because there are just so many conversations now being held and it is starting to take on a, a much more serious tone in that, um, Florida and, and some other states are actually taking a page from uh, what Texas uh, did in implementing its uh, ban on abortion in that they are basically creating uh, you know, civilian posses to police the school districts and the teachers and sue when they think that the the teachers are violating some you know uh, tenant of these rules, uh, and you know that's just going to generate more animosity. That's going to generate more controversy and conflict, uh, and basically detract from what our teachers are are supposed to be there doing, and that is to teach and instruct um, our young people. Uh, on the values of being an American citizen, uh, how a, an American citizen uh, should be uh, comporting themselves, and so forth. So, you know, it, it is something that you know, we need to keep a focus on, but also to, to keep a, a realistic eye and recognize that uh, these, these elements like uh, critical race theory and, you know, the, the ideas and concepts and discussions around LGBTQ issues in this country is something that uh, we need to make sure that we are having age-appropriate discussions uh, when necessary, but not get into the full, deep, serious uh, conversations in in, in those realms where that really doesn't apply, such as in, in our youngest elementary school students. Uh, they're busy learning, you know, reading, writing, uh, arithmetic, and, and all of that. Uh, we don't need to be um, 
driving these divisive subjects so far deep down into our education system. Uh, I think that's part of the problem that we face now with a lot of the insensitivities that we see out there. So just a thought to, to lead things off. Uh, wanted to get that out there. All right, moving right along. I'm um, going to touch on something that you know is, is kind of a favorite subject here, Fired Up. Uh, and I say favorite because it's something that we talk about quite frequently and that we have been keeping track of uh, since the uh, 2020 election and, and the census. And that is the redistricting that is going on in the country. Um, there's an article that I saw, and this came from uh, Ballotpedia.org, uh, and, and they're tracking their weekly uh, news highlight section. And uh, it talks about the, uh, they're listing redistricting roundup, and specifically they're talking about North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Wisconsin. And what they're, they're doing is they are reporting as to what is going on with the states and the congressional redistricting uh, that is required as, as uh, under the Constitution uh, once the census has been completed. So uh, for 369 of the 435 seats in the House of Representatives, and that's 84.8% for you math whizzes out there, uh, con congressional re redistricting has been completed. So that boils down to 37 states uh, that have adopted congressional district maps. Uh, one state has approved congressional district boundaries, uh, but they have not yet taken effect. And federal or state courts have blocked uh, previously adopted maps in one state. Five states have not yet adopted congressional redistricting plans after the census, and six states were apportioned one U.S. House district, so no congressional district redistricting is required. Uh, so, as I said, 369 out of 435 uh, House seats, 84.8% uh, overall. Ballotpedia also tracks the state legislative redistricting, because keep in mind, that not only does the uh, U.S. House of Representatives get reapportioned based on the census, but also state legislatures, uh, state house and state senates get uh, reapportioned as well when new district maps are drawn. So according to Ballotpedia, uh, nationwide legislative redistricting has been completed for 1,655 of 1,972 state Senate seats, and that represents 83.9%, and 3,884 of 5,411 state House seats for 71.8%. Uh, as with the federal, there are a couple uh, of states that have approved but not yet enacted their uh, redistricting, and there is one uh, is going need to be redone as it's been overturned by the court. Uh, if you want to see the, the full article, I will post a link uh, on the Facebook page to the article from Ballotpedia so that you can read it for yourself. But, you know, as we've talked about uh, over the course of 
the months since the conclusion of the 2020 election and discussions about redistricting uh, took a, a much more real-time curve, uh, the, the idea is that we need to be aware as voters as to what's happening. Uh, we need to be looking at the maps that are being drawn and to be wary and watchful for cases where gerrymandering has been applied uh, to you know, overwhelmingly consolidate power for one party or the other uh, and or exclude uh, you know, groups or areas of uh, votes uh, that the party in power uh, does not want to gain more of a foothold, which is a nice way of saying that you know, they are using gerrymandering techniques. And this goes, again, Democrats are doing it too. So you know, it's, it's not just a Republican thing. Uh, they're using gerrymandering and other techniques to exclude uh, voters typically but not exclusively uh, voters of color or uh, voters of, you know, in, in the, the poor and working class segments of the electorate. Uh, so, you know, what does this mean? You know, when, when we talk about the problem of redistricting and the problem of, you know, gerrymandering and these other things, uh, and, and we've talked about this many times on this show, um, you know, what, it, what does that mean for everyday you and me is it means that uh, one party or the other has, through the process of how the district lines are drawn, has consolidated a hold on a given district uh, that doesn't reflect the overall makeup of the voters in that district. What do I mean by that? Well, as, as we've talked about prior, um, you could have a district where, you know, a, a majority of the voters are of one party. Uh, let's say, you know, the majority of the voters are Republicans. Um, however, the state legislature and the governor's mansion are controlled by Democrats. So what would happen typically is they will go out and they will canvas that district and count only those localities where uh, the Democrats have a, a majority. Remember, even though a state may show up on a map you see on the news as being red, it doesn't mean that there are no blue constituents in there or vice versa. You know, there are Democrats in red states and there are Republicans in blue states. So what they do is they will go out and collect the people of their party and gather them into a, a single district or a group of districts. Uh, and that way you end up with control of the state legislature and control of the uh, the uh, federal um, representative counts uh, based on those gerrymandered districts. And so what do I mean by that? Well, you know, you can have uh, a state that has, you know, 16 districts uh, be and, and 
if they just went strictly geographically, uh, you know, it might be, you know, nine and seven, you know, nine districts of one party, seven districts of another. When they apply gerrymandering to it, they end up with, you know, 12 and four, you know, 12 of the majority party uh, districts and four of the opposing party districts. And we've seen this in many states where uh, lines were redrawn that essentially eliminated uh, opposition party districts uh, or, you know, consolidated them down into one or two or three from, you know, whatever number they had before. So, you know, the the idea of these gerrymandered districts means that the party in power maintains its control over the state legislature and through them maintains their majority in terms of the number of seats they hold in the House of Representatives. So they essentially stack the deck in their favor uh, for votes uh, going out for 10 years until the next census and the next redistricting. So, you know, we have said from, you know, day one of this effort that you know, it, it is up to us, the voters, it is us to, up to us, the electorate, to be in contact with our state representatives and make it clear that we want to see districts that are fairly drawn, that represent uh, geographically and from a standpoint of constituents, the, the residents that are there, uh, and to limit as much as possible the impacts and effects of gerrymandering. Now, you know, as I said, we are, you know, 80 plus percent uh, completed with the the states redrawing their maps. So, you know, there there's not much that we can do in, in terms of those uh, for the next 10 years. Hopefully, you know, we have gotten districts that, you know, accurately and adequately reflect the residents that live there. Uh, but, you know, we are essentially locked into these. Uh, that have been concluded uh, for the next 10 years. So, you know, you can see where, you know, if there is a, a, an agenda being pushed by one party or the other, that, you know, for the next 10 years, we're going to be living with that agenda. Um, and it may not be uh, in line with what we had initially voted for, with uh, what we wanted our representatives to be about, so, you know, we, we have to live with that. However, that doesn't mean that we have to be silent. So, you know, the, the, the activism that we need to practice here is we need to be engaged with our representatives, with our, our local, our state representatives, and with our federal representatives and hold their feet to the fire for what we voted them in for. Because... You know, we may be stuck with these districts for another 10 years, but in, in terms of the uh, U.S. House of Representatives, we only have to be stuck with who we have in Washington representing us as a congressman uh, for two years and, you know, as a senator for six years. So we can change over our federal Congress people. Uh, three plus times 
in this 10-year span until, you know, hopefully we get somebody that, that accurately reflects what we want. And I think that's a point that, you know, a, a subtlety that often is, is not uh, played up as much as it should be. Uh, clearly, the House of Representatives, they're up for re-election. Their terms are two years. So that means that every two years, we get to, you know, pass judgment on the job that our congressmen in Washington have done for us by either returning them to office or kicking them out of office in favor of someone else. And the same process happens at the state level, which is why, as we've called for on this show many, many times, you have to be engaged with your representative. They need to hear from you. They need to hear your opinions on the, the, the issues of the day. You need to be telling them how you want them to vote. Because they represent you, but they also work for you. So, you know, exercise that power and that authority on the things that you and people that think like you hold dear. Now, you know, that, that's the name of the game. So, you know, just so you know, as I said, call to action is find out what your representatives are all about if you don't already know. Uh, the activism to practice is get engaged, make those phone calls, send those emails, let them know that you are out there, that you are listening to what they say, that you are watching what they do, and that you will exercise the franchise and show them the door if they are not living up to the expectations that you had when you voted for them in the first place. Uh, and you know that is true of all elected officials, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise. If they are not performing as we want them to perform, then we need to vote them out, period, full stop. All right. Um, let's take a quick break here. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Fired Up podcast on WJMS Media. We'll be right back after this short message. I was going to get my voter ID card because they said you had to have it in order to be able to vote. When I got there, I approached the gentleman at the counter and told him what I wanted. I showed him my veteran's card. He said that was no good. He said you had to have a state-issued ID card in order to be able to vote. Seniors, women, people of color, young adults, those with low incomes, people with disabilities. Every citizen needs to review your documentation now to make sure you can vote in November. Please check with your local county election board to make sure the name on your photo ID closely matches the name you used when you registered to vote. Please contact us at 866-OUR-VOTE or 866-687-8683. All right, and we're back. Let's uh, pick it up and keep it moving. So I want to ask a question. And if you've been paying attention to the news, of course, over the last two weeks, you know that there is a uh, conflict, quote, quote, uh, war or, you know, whatever you want to call it, going on over in Ukraine where uh, Russia, the, the Russian Federation, has crossed the border and invaded Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, there is a military battle going on over there. Well, 
you know, while the United States and, you know, in my opinion, rightly so, um, has said that they are not going to put uh, American boots on the ground in Ukraine uh, for this this battle going on. uh, But they are, in fact, uh, supporting and providing military aid and humanitarian aid uh, and and funding to a lot of the elements backing Ukraine in this in this conflict. Uh, if you've seen in the news, you've noticed that um, some of the uh, assets of the Soviet Federation have been frozen. Um, they have been blocked from access to uh, capital in the global markets, uh, and they have had uh, assets seized uh, around uh, around the world, um, particularly from the the richest individuals, the so-called oligarchs, um, which um, in in some senses it's it's kind of humorous because uh, there some news articles came out about a couple of these oligarchs scrambling to get their you know four hundred million dollar yachts you know out of the the ports of, of France or Italy or wherever they were. Uh, to get them to a safe haven before they got seized uh, by the uh, local government uh, as as part of the efforts uh, against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And you may have noticed that um, outside of assets that are here on American soil, uh, the United States has not gone outside of its borders going after uh, assets uh, of these oligarchs uh, wherever they may be in the world. However, uh, it, it, it is possible for the United States to do just that. Uh, there was an article uh, or story that came out during the course of the week that talked about something, uh, frankly, I had not heard about uh, before in this context, uh, but the question was raised as to whether or not under our laws here in the United States, if the United States could go outside its borders and seize the assets of a foreign individual. And apparently it is legal to do that. It is, uh, it is in our Constitution. And if you want to go and see it for yourself, it is the 11th, I believe, item in Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution. And this article gives uh, that Congress shall have uh, among its powers the power to um, declare, declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. So translating that into everyday English, um, letters of mark and reprisal is the key phrase there. What that means is that the Congress of the United States could authorize the president to then further authorize um, agents uh, to go and seize assets of people uh, who are in conflict with the United States, either real or, you know, by extension. And 
that means that on behalf of NATO and the European Union, uh, we could exercise uh, sanctions against Russia uh, that include uh, asset seizures and forfeitures of its rich, richest individuals wherever they may be around the world. Um, and that is something that under our Constitution is legal to do so. And I, I found that interesting. Um, you know, it, it is, if, if people are debating that, hey, well, you can't go out and seize that. The U.S. can't go out and seize that. It's in international waters. It's, it's against the law. No, it actually is legal. Uh, refer them to the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. I believe it is the 11th uh, item in that section, and it specifically says the power to grant um, letters of mark and reprisal. And that's, that's been in our laws since day one. So, you know, don't be surprised if you see in the news where, in addition to the French seizing, you know, oligarchs' uh, assets uh, and the Italians doing it, and uh, it happening in Sweden, I believe, uh, that the U.S. Is, is capable of doing more than what it has done so far. And it has frozen assets. Uh, it has locked away bank accounts belonging to uh, the Russian government and you know, to Vladimir Putin, to the oligarchs, to others, uh, in an effort to starve the Russian uh, war machine of its money uh, to effect an end to the conflict. So it's just one tool in, in the, the toolbox, one club in the golf bag that the United States is using uh, to support the efforts of the Ukrainian people in defending and regaining their country uh, and to send a message to uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians that this action uh, that they have taken uh, and, you know, for the the violations that they have done you know and and they've been they've been notable they have shelled not just you know airports they shelled hospitals and nursing homes and other care facilities that are in no way military targets they have also shelled the largest nuclear power plant uh in the ukraine uh risking the release of radiation into the area they have also you know been encroaching on and and getting close to the crippled reactor at chernobyl uh, and again these are not military targets um, they are in terms of the power plant the working power plant uh, it is a a psychological uh, it is a a non-military but strategic target in that you know it, it allows them to have control over the electric grid and to you know create chaos and and panic through that way but in in terms of chernobyl that is just a a humanitarian disaster looking to happen uh, that plant uh, if, if you're unaware you can look it up is the site of the worst nuclear disaster in the world, uh, in history, and you know it is the plant where 
due to various things uh, in, from design to operator error that it nearly completely melted down. It partially melted down and sprayed uh, radiation into the atmosphere that covered like seven, if I remember correctly, like seven European countries, including Russia, uh, with radioactive fallout uh, for weeks. And at, there is an exclusion zone of, uh, I don't know how many square, mi square miles or square kilometers of area around it where no one lives. You know, there's an interesting documentary on Chernobyl. You can find it online where they go into the nearest city next to the plant. And, you know, it, it's now some 30 years later, I believe, that you look at this and there are still um, dishes on uh, dishes on the table uh, with you know food and utensils. There are still pots and pans on the stove where people were cooking the, you know, kids toys laying in the middle of the floor where they were playing where people once the plant failed they you know got up and got out so quick literally probably with just the clothes on their back and left everything and this town you know is a ghost town now uh, but it is exactly as they left it uh, the day the hour and the minute that that plant uh, had its problem so um, anyway a little digression but just so you know that uh, the United States does have the legal authority under its constitution to seize assets of uh, the Russian oligarchs, not only here within our borders here, but also, you know, on, on behalf of, as I said, NATO and the European Union and, you know, our partners uh, in the, the struggle against Russia and aggression in Ukraine, uh, anywhere we find them. You know, if they are in, you know, our hemisphere or, you know, they're docked, uh, you know, anywhere at a U.S. port, they can be seized and it's legal to do so. So I found that interesting. I just thought I'd pass that along. It's an interesting point for discussion. And again, if if someone is arguing that seizing assets is illegal, no, it's it is legal under our Constitution. So. All right. Um also wanted to bring up and you may have seen these uh, on you know gas pumps and, and so forth uh, and it, it is a meme that got generated has turned into some stickers and basically it's a a photo or a picture of President Biden pointing um, and the caption reads I did this and what people are doing is they are placing these stickers on gas pumps, pointing, pointing to the price of gas, of gasoline. Uh, and, you know, a, as a way of um, just trying to hang this around President Biden's neck, uh, which is really nonsensical because at the end of the day, the president of the United States does not set gasoline prices um, the the president of the United States uh, does not state how much a gallon of gas uh, will cost in this country it is a market-driven cost uh, your actually your state governments have more impact into the the price of gas that you pay for at the pump 
than the federal government. Um, state taxes uh, on the, uh, a gallon of gasoline uh, are higher than any federal taxes that are applied on a gallon of gasoline uh, because that money goes to fund uh, roads and bridges and, and highway uh, construction uh, in your state. Um, so, you know, while it's cute, it is not exactly accurate. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I, I find it interesting at the things that uh, people latch on to as an opposition tactic, uh, even if it isn't uh, 100% factually true. And we've seen this time and time again, and we're seeing it again. Um, you know, President Biden is being uh, accused of all kinds of things related to the Ukraine war, uh, to, um, you know, all of the things that have been going on with Vladimir Putin, uh, when really uh, he hasn't been the one that has had any kind of activity that might be considered an instigation for Vladimir Putin to do what he has done. Um, you know, he Biden is, is accused of uh, allowing the COVID pandemic to run rampant in this country when, in fact, uh, in the year that he has been president, he has vaccinated uh, or he has overseen the vaccination of, you know, 10 times the number of people that were vaccinated uh, in the time between the first release of the vaccines to the public and the end of the previous administration's term uh, in January of 2021. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's just an ongoing uh, propaganda war that is being waged. Uh, and as always, you know, when you hear these things, you have to, one, take them with a grain of salt, two, go out, find other news sources, and verify the the information, preferably uh, so you know so-called quote reputable news sources. Um, and you've also, as we say on this show all the time, you can't just listen to the people that are on the same side of of the aisle or the issue as you are. You need to listen to all sides. You know, as as I as I've said in the past, in, in researching for this show each week. Um, I listen to, you know, left wing media, centrist media, right wing media, uh, crazy media. You know, I listen to as much of it as I can get a hold of and, you know, boil it all down because the truth lies somewhere in the middle of what they're talking about. You know, when we when we talk about which media outlets are, are telling the truth in plain fact, None of them are 100% truthful. I don't care if we're talking about um, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, Breitbart, One America News, Newsmax. All of them have their own agenda that drives the content that they provide to us. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, people like to pick on, you know, the, the Rachel Maddows of the world and the 
the Tucker Carlson's of the world, at the end of the day, realize that their goal is viewership for their station or for their shows, because that's what drives their revenue. Um, if, if they were not saying things that got you and millions of your, your friends and neighbors and, and so forth watching or listening to them every day, uh, they would not be on the air because they would not be making money for their station or for themselves. So, you know, that means that everything that they are telling us, we need to take with that grain of salt and we need to do our own diligence to dig wider, dig deeper and compare what, you know, a Tucker Carlson is saying to what, you know, a, a Lawrence O'Donnell or a, um, you know, Anderson Cooper is saying and amazingly you will find that there are some common nuggets in there um you know as much as people you know bad mouth uh fox news they don't always um you know sling nothing but bs sometimes they get it right uh just like every other station sometimes gets it right uh msnbc uh has a definite you know, left wing bent. There's no denying that it, it's it's obvious. And, you know, Fox News is definitely a right wing leaning uh, conservative uh, station. That's just who they are. So if if you want to find out what the real deal is, it lies somewhere between the left and the right, somewhere in that middle. Same thing with, you know, you know, Breitbart and Politico and, you know, all these other outlets um, that you may be getting your information from. Some are on the right, some are on the left. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. And, you know, even even I, and I'm, I'm not trying to elevate myself uh, to the same level as, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell or Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson or, or any of those, um, I'm just a guy with a podcast. Um, but even I, you know, have biases and, and leanings. Now, I try to be as objective and, and fair and even as I can. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human and our biases and our, our leanings and, and our upbringing and, and all of those elements come into play with what we talk about, what we believe, and, you know, what we read and see and listen to. So, you know, it, it, it's as best as I can try to be objective, I do that. But, you know, I have my leanings, I, I have my uh, alliances and affiliations and so forth. And that does play into it from time to time. And I just want to also mention that you know, while, as I said, I try and be as objective as possible, um, if you think that I'm showing a bias or that there's a side of a story that I'm not covering or giving, you know, giving a fair shot to, send an email to the program. Uh, you can email us at firedupradio at yahoo.com and, you know, hold my feet to the fire too. You know, that that's part of being uh, engaged. That's part of the activism. That's that's part of the call to action, is to make sure that um, you know if I'm making a mistake or if I'm not covering something 
that you think should be covered, I want to know about it. I want the opportunity to, to provide you what you're asking for. Um, hopefully that is, is why you continue to listen to the podcast uh, each week. Uh, I want it to be reflective of what you know, your views are as much as what my views are. So send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and let me know what you think. I really would love to hear from as many of you as possible uh, what you like, what you don't like. So reach out. Let me hear. Um, all right. So let's um, let's finish up the podcast for this episode. Um, this past Sunday, March 13th, was uh, an anniversary of an event from two years ago. And uh, on this date, two years ago, 26-year-old Brianna Taylor was in her apartment with fiancé Kenneth Walker when shortly after midnight, Louisville Metro police officers executing a no-knock search warrant charged through her front door. Uh, Ms. Taylor was shot multiple times. She gasped for air for five minutes before dying on the floor of her home. Uh, the police were executing a search warrant for an investigation into a suspected drug dealer who, police alleged, had once retrieved a package from Taylor's home. But the suspected drug dealer didn't live in her building and had, in fact, just been arrested at a different location. Uh, her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, fired a warning shot as the officers breached the front door with a battering ram, and officers responded by firing several bullets into the apartment. Just 10 days ago on March 3rd, the uh, officer that was uh, charged in her uh, murder was uh, acquitted of those charges uh, by a jury in Kentucky. Uh, one other police officer uh, has been charged, but not with uh, regard to the death of Ms. Taylor, rather for wanton endangerment uh, by uh, shooting several uh, rounds into other apartments. Uh, basically, you know, bullets fired went through the wall and ended up in, in neighbors' apartments uh, in the building. So, you know, Breonna Taylor became one of the faces for the Black Lives Matter movement, and her death led to a citywide ban on no-knock warrants in Louisville. Uh, her unnecessary death, along with the murder of George Floyd, which would occur two months later, sparked nationwide protests against police brutality. So, you know, Breonna Taylor is someone whose legacy is linked not just with George Floyd, but all the way back through uh, to Trayvon Martin and others in that uh, her face, her story, uh, the outcome of her tragic death uh, has become sort of a defining moment when we look at uh, the conduct of some of our police officers here in this country. And the key word, as, as we've said many times, is it is some, not all. Uh, the overwhelming majority of police officers do an admirable job. And in fact, uh, many of them will go through pretty much their entire uh, police service career and never draw their weapon except on a target range. 
So at the end of the day, as we as we mark the two year anniversary of the death of Breonna Taylor, uh, and and what it means is it means that we have to stay vigilant in keeping our attention on what is transpiring in our own communities. We need to you know be engaged with our local police forces. We need to be registering um, our our complaints. Um, when officers step out of line, when they exceed their authority, or when these kind of incidents happen, we need to be very clear that that is not acceptable. On the other hand, we also need to make sure that we recognize that police officers every day, uh, in the midst of a very tough and demanding job, do many, many, many uh, acts of good Many good deeds occur and go somewhat unnoticed and unappreciated uh, by us to the members of police force and the firefighters and, you know, the first responders in general that are out there, uh, you know, to protect us. Keep in mind that, you know, they didn't work from home during the pandemic. Your police department, your fire department, your hospital staff, your EMS teams. All of those people were out during the pandemic while we were all, you know, staying at home or or trying to isolate ourselves and be protected. They were on the front lines. So while, you know, the Breonna Taylor incidents uh, that that we hear about in the news are, you know, tragic and are, you know, concerning, uh, they are not the norm. The vast majority, as I said, of first responders uh, are righteous, upstanding people who are deserving of our thanks and our praise uh, and who are working and doing their part to identify and eliminate those people who you know, are, are representing the worst of us and get them off of the police forces and off of the first responder teams um, you know, permanently. So, you know, with that being said, you know, obviously take a moment and, you know, go back and look at what happened to Breonna Taylor. Realize that, you know, she played a large role uh, and her death played a large role in, you know, building up the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the the positive outcomes that have come from that organization uh, can be in part uh, attributed to her. So we're, we're going to wrap up on that note. Thank you all for listening. As always, I do appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate also your thoughts and comments. Send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and let me know what you think. And until then, I look forward to another podcast coming out from Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, and we'll speak again in seven days. Mm-hmm.